This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss University of Baltimore law professor Daniel Hatcher's new book, The Poverty Industry, The Exploitation of America's Most Vulnerable Citizens. Daniel, welcome to the program. Hello, David. Thank you for having me on the show. Professor Hatcher's bio is posted, of course, on the podcast website. On background, Professor Hatcher's work is particularly relevant because each year without fail, members of Congress and or political candidates will argue for block-granting federal aid to states. Specifically, this means the federal government should transfer an amount of federal funds, for example, Medicaid funds, to states to allow them to freely decide how to spend the money. This has been long-time Republican Party orthodoxy. For example, this year's GOP campaign platform states, to guarantee first-rate care for the needy, we propose to block grant Medicaid and other payments. Is this a good idea? Professor Hatcher would likely argue it's not. In his book's introduction, Professor Hatcher states his intention is to reveal how the quote-unquote poverty industry is, and I quote, strip mining billions in federal aid and other funds from impoverished families, abused and neglected children, and the disabled and elderly poor. So with that as background or introduction, Daniel, obviously I'd like to start with what prompted you to write this book? Well, thank you for that introduction, and, and um, I, I would love to further your, your question about the block grants, and I, and I agree that, I, that it's a bad idea for block grants, but I can explain that more. Um, in terms of what prompted me to write the book, I think it's a combination of my past direct advocacy and my past research and scholarship. So, so my very first legal aid job um, after law school was representing children in the Baltimore foster care system, and it was uh, overwhelming to me, both in the, the number of cases and in the circumstances that these children were dealing with, both while they're in foster care and as they're struggling to leave foster care and to make it on their own. So just the, the hardship of the individualized circumstances. But then to realize through my advocacy and some digging in some of the cases that there were examples where the system, be it the courts or the uh, foster care agencies that exist to protect and serve the best interests of these children, were sometimes putting their own interests above the children's interests, so that the, the system designed to protect the children was actually working against the interests of the children. Um, that led to, to more advocacy, and I eventually um, um, dug into additional research on Medicaid-related issues. The very first example that I dug into, both in, both in litigation and in my scholarship, was how the foster care agencies are actually taking resources from children in their care. Um, seeking to maximize the number of children determined disabled, for example, to claim more SSI, Social Security SSI, benefits on behalf of the children, benefits that belong to the children. Um, in Maryland, I obtained contract documents that show the state is trying to increase that percentage from around 4% now to upwards to 20% of the foster care population using a contractor to help. 
but not to provide any additional resources whatsoever to the kids, not to provide any additional help for the disabling conditions, but literally to take the money from the children um, as a state savings. So here you have the agencies that exist to serve foster children actually taking benefits from them. And I've seen similar examples of Medicaid and, and you know, practices that use nursing home facilities, um, many examples that I get into in the book. And it's uh, so it's just striking to me and it's concerning to me and being candid, it's really upsetting to me when you have systems that exist to serve the vulnerable that are instead using the vulnerable. And in your book, you do give a good number of examples uh, relative to uh, the state of Maryland. So let me uh, ask next, uh, this misuse of federal foster care and Medicaid money, you explain largely by what you term poverty's iron triangle. Uh, this phrase, iron triangle, may be familiar to some, but you give it, put it in particular context. So what is this poverty iron triangle and how does it work? Sure. So um, I also explain how it's um, similar to what has been called the military uh, iron triangle, also the military-industrial complex. Um, with poverty's iron triangle, you have so, and, and there's some irony that you actually have some of the same very contractors that are involved in the military-industrial complex, such as Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin, that, that are involved in the poverty industrial complex, the poverty industry. These companies, Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin, are also providing child support services, for example, and there's a long list of examples like that. But so with poverty's iron triangle, you have, at the triangle, you have the federal government and you have states, and then you have the poverty industry private contractors. And the line between the federal government and the states are the aid funds, often in the form of what's called fiscal federalism, such as Medicaid is, is the largest example of that, where you have the structure is it's shared financing and shared um, governance of the programs, um, usually in line with the central government, the federal government being the biggest provider of the funds, because there's greater ability to raise those funds, with the argument that the states, the local, more local governments, should then be running the programs, which is, again, the structure of the Medicaid program, because the argument is that the states should better know what their citizens' needs are, right? And that makes some sense. You know, as you get smaller in government, they might have a better sense of what the local citizens really need and can better meet those individualized needs. The problem, and there are more concerns with that, but one of the huge problems with the theory of fiscal federalism and what's happening with poverty's iron triangle is that third corner, the introduction of the relationship between the states and these poverty industry contractors, right, that are then targeting the aid funds and to maximize the aid funds, not to provide more services to the vulnerable, but to turn those aid funds into state general revenue and to private profit. And that's completely undercutting the relationship of fiscal federalism. It's supposed to be a collaboration. It's supposed to be a partnership of strengths between the federal government and the states. But instead, the introduction of the poverty industry and the poverty industry revenue schemes, which I discussed in the book, is undermining that partnership and has been turning it into a relationship of conflict and distrust between the federal government and the states. So let's stay with private contractors or their uh, side of the triangle, this equilateral triangle. Uh, you discuss at length uh, their behavior and I should say, uh, this is not unfamiliar on the Medicare side. 
There are any number of uh, these like contractors. The phrase used in Medicare is revenue cycle management. Uh, basically amounts to the same behavior uh, frequently. But you talk about contingency funding. What is that and how does that motivate these private contractors? Sure. So with the Medicaid program and with foster care, which is Title IV-E of the Social Security Act, the, the, the largest funder, funding stream of federal aid to states to help provide foster care services. And there's other examples. Um, so with these aid programs, states are often looking to private revenue contractors, often called revenue maximization consultants, to help with the ins and outs of how to claim and maximize the aid, you know, the process of claiming Medicaid, both from service providers to the states and then from the states to the federal government, is sometimes complex. Um, so they're using uh, these companies that have expertise in how to maximize those claims for aid. And then oftentimes with the states, it's, it's through an illusory process with Medicaid, right, where um, Medicaid is matching grant programs. So Maryland, the example of Maryland spends $50, um, of, of on Medicaid-eligible services, it can claim a $50 match from the federal government to have $100 total. Often what states are doing, working with contractors, is they've found ways to essentially move money around um, without actually having any additional state spending, but they'll still claim the federal match. That in itself is concerning to me because it's illusory. But what's even more concerning is then when the state's take that federal aid and then don't even use it for intended purposes. So they take the additional federal Medicaid funds and then do not use it for federal Medicaid purposes, sometimes routing it just into general revenue, sometimes targeting it for totally different purposes. I talk about an example of Oregon where the state was using the Medicaid funds to fund the public education system, as an example. The contingency fee comes up is that sometimes the payment structure with these contractors or that the contractors will entice the states to sign on to these revenue contracts because uh, it does not cost the states anything. Um, if the contractors get paid based upon a percentage of the additional federal aid that's claimed uh, on behalf of the vulnerable population. Sometimes it's in a straight contingency fee structure. Sometimes it's, it's um, a flat fee per case, but it's still incentivized in a way that it doesn't really cost the states money unless the contractors bring in additional funds. So you, you demonstrate this by providing several examples of how these private contractors are charged under the False Claims Act and have to make uh, repayment. Well, I'll just note that and, and move on. You're largely concerned with uh, state agencies then again in collaboration with private contractors, as I phrased, uh, monetizing poverty by exploiting foster care children and Medicaid beneficiaries. Um, you gave one example relative to Oregon, um, but by way of explaining how this happens, I have to say the examples you gave frequently were genuinely heart-rendering, but uh, can you provide some other illustrative examples? Sure. Um, there's um, a striking example out of New Jersey um, I think, where, again, this is with Medicaid, but it's school-based Medicaid, so um, states can also claim Medicaid funds on behalf of school children, usually for essentially for you know, special education disability-related services. So the kids who are eligible will be poor, disabled school children. And that's a good thing to claim the additional aid to provide services. You know, this is the huge need for, for, for these children, for these services in the schools. 
But what New Jersey is doing is they work with a revenue contractor there in New Jersey by the name of the Public Consulting Group. The states are the, the schools are forced to participate to work with the revenue contractor to maximize the number of children who would be eligible for the school-based Medicaid and to maximize the number of claims, the, the types of services that would be eligible for the claims. Again, I think, you know, right there, all that can be good. It brings in more aid funds for the schools and for, through the schools through these individual children who need the additional services. But right in the, what's the current, the Christie administration budget is over 80% of those additional federal aid funds, school-based Medicaid claims, are then routed to the state general coffers. So the state literally, you can see it in the budget documents, is taking tens of millions of dollars in federal Medicaid funds from poor, disabled school children. And meantime, you know, there's stories in New Jersey how the schools are so underfunded that they've resorted to selling ads on the sides of school buses. You, uh, you note Nebraska, I thought was interesting, relative to the state taking possession of these children's, if they should have them. Uh, grave sites, but let's 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 go. Let's stay with foster care for a second, because you spend a good deal of time talking about how states basically co-opt these foster children's social uh, security insurance uh, benefits. Can you explain how that happens? Sure, and this is happening, you know, across the country. Not all states are working with revenue contractors, but an increasing number are. Um, Maryland, I use that as an example because. That's where I teach law school, and that's where I practice, and I was involved in some litigation in Maryland. So Maryland now um, has a contract with a company by the name of Maximus. Maximus also runs the child support office in Baltimore City. Maximus has a contract with the Social Security Administration um, with the Ticket to Work program. It's, it has contracts in many, if not most, states. Um, but in Maryland, the contract with Maximus now, the company is helping the state foster care agencies to uh, – find Social Security benefits from kids in their care. So helping the state um, increase the number of foster children determined disabled in order to claim their SSI disability benefits, or helping the state find those foster children with uh, dead parents, you know, so that so the state can claim the survivor benefits. And so I've obtained contract documents, and there's some really concerning language in, in, the, uh, in the contract documents. For one, for example, Maximus describes the foster children as a revenue-generating mechanism. So, you know, that's a big concern. But I will say where I'm more concerned is what the state's doing, because it's ultimately the government leader. You know, it's the governor of Maryland who's deciding after Maximus helps the state claim these SSI funds, these disability benefits, and these survivor benefits on behalf of foster children. It's the government leaders who's taking the money. They're the ones who are deciding once we claim the money, we're going to take it now and route it to general revenue rather than actually use the children's own funds to help those individual children as intended. Uh, I represented a, uh, a former foster child in Maryland in litigation regarding this issue, and I talk about him in the book, um, first name of Alex. And Alex, when he uh, came into care after his mother died, he moved around in, in several placements, you know, upwards of over 20 placements, never in a stable home. Um, they found a brother who was a potential placement for him to go live with, and his brother dies. And his father um, died. 
and then his father dies. And, you know, so everybody in the support kid's family keeps dying. And once his father dies, they realize Alex is eligible for survivor benefits. Um, the state goes after the money, never tells Alex, never tells Alex the state is, is going to apply to take over control of the money as representative payee, and then it took every penny of it from him. You know, he never knew, and he, and he ages out of foster care penniless, literally. Now, the Social Security Administration has a role in all this, and uh, by way of uh, noting it, you identify the kitty loop. What's the kitty right. loop? Yeah, the kitty loop, you know, so the Social Security Administration definitely does need to improve the process because they're supposed to find a representative payee, the individual who manages the child's funds when a child receives Social Security benefits. It's a fiduciary relationship, right? You know, they're supposed to decide how do you best use this money to meet that child's best interests currently. Um, and you're supposed to pick and find the best person. It's supposed to be an investigation. However, the Social Security Administration developed this kitty loop because the state's foster care agencies for foster kids are essentially automatically being appointed as representative payee, even though they're supposed to do a search to find the best individual organization. And even though under the federal regulations, the state agencies are the least preferred choice. So let's go to the rationale for this. So what rationale explains state behavior, particularly when you note over again that the state's share of foster care costs must be paid by the states? And uh, the fact decisions are to be made relative to foster children in the best interest of the child. And you also mentioned the 67 SCOTUS, or Supreme Court case, which noted or affirmed the fact that children have constitutional due process rights. Right. So the rationale you know, of why states are doing this across the country is I think that, that states are cash-strapped, um, and there are human service agencies even more so. Um, and this is happening in blue states and red states alike. And I think in these, in all states, you know, they're unwilling to raise sufficient revenue to fund government through fair general taxation. So they're looking for money elsewhere, and, and including these behind-the-scenes revenue schemes where they're even taking aid from vulnerable populations using you know, billions, literally, in Medicaid funds across the country instead of for Medicaid purposes as a state general revenue source. And we've reached a point even where our foster care agencies are literally taking money from the very children that they exist to serve. So it's it's a diversion of purpose, which which is hugely concerning, not just in the mission. You know, when you have an agency that has a, such a clear-cut purpose and that mission mission shifts, from serving the beneficiary to the agency serving itself, you know, that's a huge concern, but it's, it's not just theoretical. I mean, this is causing real harm. You know, if you consider foster children, foster kids suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder at twice the level of Iraq war veterans. And the kids, when they age out of care, just are not doing well. Many of them, if not most of them, end up back on public assistance, end up homeless, um, end up involved in the criminal justice system. And what I try to describe in the book is that I hope we can remember that, you know, when these kids are harmed, it's not just harming the kids, it's harming all of us, both from a moral perspective and financially. You know, we all pay the cost when these kids do poorly when they age out of care. And that's why the term uh, or the use of the word vulnerable, you spend a fair amount of time talking about abuses in skilled nursing facilities because long-term care in this country is largely funded by Medicaid, not Medicare. Um, maybe brief mention of what you found 
in that venue? Sure. So, so uh, you know, nursing homes aren't doing very well in our country on average in terms of the performance um, uh, tests and like with the federal government starting looking at nursing homes and some other nonprofits that are grading nursing home facilities. Um, uh, there are, are incredible, incredibly concerning examples of poor care. Um, nursing homes are often used in some of these Medicaid uh, maximization schemes, again, where money will be um, moved around, sometimes through bed tax schemes, sometimes through other schemes. Again, essentially where that, that results in the money um, doing a round trip, either to the nursing home and back to the states or from the nursing homes to the states and back to the nursing homes. But again, it triggers a claim for federal aid on behalf of the nursing home residents and then many of the states aren't then using that those aid funds to actually provide additional services to the nursing home residents. I, I talk about a stark example out of Indiana, and I'm from Indiana originally, um, out of Indianapolis, where the uh, municipal agency, the Health and Hospital Corporation there, um, started realized that it could buy up for-profit nursing homes. It would buy up the licenses to run the nursing homes and then sometimes even hire the very same companies that it bought the licenses from to keep running the nursing home facilities. But once it, you know, at least theoretically owned the, the, the nursing homes, it could immediately claim a higher Medicaid reimbursement rate. And the Indiana nursing homes have been some of the worst performing in the country, and several grades has been, has been the worst performing in the country. Um, but what the this municipal agency, the Health and Hospital Corporation, was doing then is claiming these additional Medicaid funds on behalf of these poor performing nursing homes and then using those funds instead of for the nursing homes to build a hospital system in Indianapolis, in downtown Indianapolis. Now, that's at least a health care related purpose, but again, that's not how those Medicaid funds are supposed to be used. And the municipal, the municipal agency was not just buying nursing homes close to Indianapolis, it was buying them corner to corner all around the state of Indiana. So, you know, no chance that even that the elderly individuals in the nursing home facilities often would even be able to benefit at some point from the hospital. Thank you. I have to make mention of your noting the misuse or overuse of antipsychotics uh, to sedate both foster kids and nursing home residents to drive greater profit. I note this because in my own research, I find it striking that nearly 10 years ago, the FDA, before the Congress in testimony, estimated 15,000 nursing homes a death, uh, 15,000 nursing home deaths a year associated with the misuse of antipsychotic medication. One of the side effects, of course, is uh, no kidding, uh, instant death. Let's go to the, uh, my last question. You conclude your work by proposing remedies to quote unquote reel in state malfeasance. What are some of these remedies, and and how hopeful, of course, are you that they'll prove successful? Sure. Well, and what I can say first is one thing that I think is not a remedy are the block grants that, that you mentioned earlier, because there's some real concern if you have states that are um, under an existing complex regulatory structure, such as Medicaid, um, are gaming the system or engaging in these illusory budget shell games and are found ways to maximize and then divert those aid funds to general state coffers, right? And that's under this regulatory structure. What's 
a governor going to do of a cash state if he or she is just given a blank check of a block grant and says and say here please help the poor right mm-hmm. you know it's, it's going to result in much greater waste of those aid funds and then less aid getting to uh, the vulnerable individuals who need it so there's you know a wide variety of solutions that are necessary and, and program by program it varies you know there's a lot of layers to this but some of them are, are pretty straightforward you know like with with Medicaid funds, our, our federal agencies should help better monitor this. I think there's enough clarity in the regulatory language and definitely in the statutory purpose that, you know, Medicaid funds are intended to be used for Medicaid purposes. So if you claim Medicaid on behalf of a nursing home resident, those federal Medicaid funds should be used in that way. Um, and the responsibility then obviously falls on those agencies on the states who are doing this and in my view misusing the aid but also on the federal agencies to make sure that the money is better monitored and where there is more clarity in terms of how the aid funds are supposed to be used regarding the issue with foster children's benefits you know as one of the examples that i talk about um i i am i'm hopeful all these practices that would increase awareness as, as we become more aware of what's happening then we will be able to apply pressure to start fixing these problems, right? I think a huge reason why all these revenue schemes have happened is that the public is largely completely unaware that this is happening. Um, and I've already seen, you know, where I'm hopeful with the issue of foster children's benefits, with the increased awareness, there has been um, a movement towards fixing it. There's um, a congressman out of Illinois who's already introduced a federal bill um, that would protect foster children's benefits and resources. This is Congressman Danny Davis out of, out of Illinois. Um, and there has been some litigation success. We were successful with a case in Maryland that found that um, the state was violating children's constitutional due process rights. I think there is wide room for more litigation on several of these issues to challenge the practices that attorneys become more aware um, and start um, deciding to bring these claims. Um, so I'm hopeful, you know, uh, again, I, I think it's it's a long process to bring change, but in order to fix a problem, first we have to be aware of the problem. So we start with awareness. So I think your program is helpful for that, you know, in getting the word out in terms of what's occurring. First admit we have a problem, right. Right. So, uh, uh, Daniel, genuinely thank you for this uh, discussion. Uh, certainly very important. Uh, we're at our time boundary, so I'll say with that, thank you very much. Thank you very much. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.